0: Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen, and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 34 and it was recorded on thursday december the 5th 2019. i'm vincent duckworth i'm a fundraiser and a partner with vitreo group we are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising this is our first episode of 2020. in fact this is the first episode of this new decade and it is also the start of our fourth season we were joined by gina rodstein founder and principal at carmen sense Dr. Sherilyn Hale, president of Watermark Philanthropic Council, and Ben Forche, a partner at DeBoski & Company. A quick side note. Later on in the episode, I introduced both Gina and Sherilyn as fundraisers. That is not correct. They are more properly introduced as philanthropic advisors and counsel. Further, I incorrectly identified Sherilyn's company. The proper name for Dr. Hale's company is Watermark Philanthropic Council. Apologies for those oversights. Our topic for this podcast, All in the Family the state of family giving as the next generation takes the torch. Family giving plays an important role in philanthropy. The huge intergenerational transfer of wealth that is and will be occurring will first be given to the next generation of family leaders who will be responsible for stewarding their family's philanthropic intent. This episode talks about this and so much more.
1: It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy podcast. Welcome to episode 34 of Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. This is our first episode of 2020. Our topic, all in the family, the state of family giving as the next generation passes the torch. This is our first podcast focused on family giving and I'm hoping it will not be our last. We have three experts in family giving with us today, two of whom are professional fundraisers and one who is a professional wealth advisor. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from Toronto, We have Dr. Sherilyn Hale. I love saying Dr. Sherilyn Hale. (laughs) Sherilyn is the founder founder and principal of Watermark Philanthropic Advising, where she helps charities and philanthropists raise more money, give with purpose, and lead effectively. Sherilyn has been a guest on our podcast twice previously. She first joined us on Episode 3, when we talked about the future of philanthropy, and she joined us again on episode nine when we talked about board governance. Welcome back, Sherilyn. Thank you. When Sherilyn last joined us uh, two years ago, she was at the beginning stages of pursuing her doctorate. Just recently, Sherilyn successfully defended her doctoral dissertation on governance in multi generational family philanthropy in Canada. Congratulations! Wow, I'm seriously mm-hmm. impressed. Thank you. <laughs>
2: Thank you. It was a wonderful experience. I um uh I enjoyed uh the the learning process and um the wide range of conversations that I was able to have uh with some really incredible families in the country. And um yeah, I I couldn't be uh couldn't be more thrilled um not just the experience for myself, but um the fact that uh, we do now have some research uh, in Canada on family philanthropy, academic research, and uh, so I'm happy to contribute to that.
1: Well, thank you, and that's actually a good segue. You know, as a newly minted PhD, I'm wondering if you can share a bit a bit with us about some of the the important research you're working on right now.
2: Hmm. Um, you know, I was particularly interested. The last number of years, I've been uh, working with uh, a range of families, and one of the things that uh, was very intriguing to me was how how they organized themselves to to do that to to be generous and to make giving decisions and so forth and um, looking at uh, the gap so every every doctoral student tries to find you know where's the gap uh, where there's a, a missing missing piece in in what we know and understand um, and so when I was doing that that landscape review identified a gap in uh, family philanthropy governance literature um, outside of the private foundation context. And uh, so so the research that we do have uh, up until now on, on governance and family philanthropy has been for those families that uh, give primarily through a, a private foundation. And looking at, at some of the trends in Canada uh, in terms of how people are giving uh, the, the emergence of donor-advised funds and the anticipated growth uh, in donor advised funds over the next little while, um, I thought that uh, it would be timely and prudent uh, to speak with families and focus on families who, who do not use a, a private foundation context for their giving. I also did that because um, private foundations, uh, as you know, they're incorporated entities, and so they have corporate governance requirements uh, that uh that a family has to fulfill. And I wanted to look at governance more broadly uh, than, than just corporate governance. And um, uh, so that's why I chose the, the sample of, of families uh, giving outside of that uh, incorporated context. Uh, and funny enough, uh, discovered um, that governance uh, identified more broadly is actually very similar for families, uh, regardless of, of the vehicle that they give through. Uh, and oh so, wow! I
1: can't. I, um, uh, I can't wait to yeah. hear more about that later in the podcast. Actually, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so, so that was that. A, the, was Go
2: ahead. I developed a, a model uh, based on the findings of the research that really provides a roadmap for families uh, about how how to organize themselves to to give well that strengthens their families and. Uh, has an impact in the community, and it's agnostic relative to uh, their their vehicle, which really makes it uh, a tool for for families of all kinds.
1: That's awesome. Um, I know you've also done some research or just some some uh, research that's emerging that maybe you can talk about later on in the program with some high-net-worth individuals in the Caribbean. So thanks for that, Sherilyn. Yeah. Thank you. Next, next joining us from Edmonton, we have Ben Fortier. Uh, ben is a partner with DeBosky and Company, a financial services firm focused on protecting and transitioning the personal and corporate wealth of their clients. This is Ben's first visit with us, and I think his first time on a podcast. So, welcome, Ben.
3: Thanks for having me, Vincent. Glad I can uh, have the first podcast experience with you guys.
1: <laughs> we hope it's awesome, <laughs> Ben. We're going to hear hear from you more on this topic on the topic today's topic later in this podcast. But before we do that, I'm wondering if you could share with us a bit about a project that you and your firm have been involved with for some time. And I think that project is called food for the hungry. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Uh,
3: Sure. Yes. We're uh, involved with a group called food for the hungry relief and development organization. And um, the work that they do is mainly in uh, developing countries like Cambodia, Africa, and what they do and what really drew us to them is, Uh, I guess if we could use this analogy, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. But if you teach a man the fishing business, then he can sell those fish to other people and he can actually feed a village for a lifetime. And that's what Food for the Hungry does, is they go in and educate um, communities and do studies on how to run and successfully manage businesses within their communities. So, for example, if it's coffee growing, teach them the coffee growing business, teach them how to take care of the uh, uh, of the coffee plants and so forth, and then how to sell that fair trade to the world to bring outside money into the community. So that really uh, that really drew us to them, and uh, so we've been involved with them for, for a while. Do I have time for a quick story? Sure. So uh, a few years ago, me and one of the other partners of the firm had an opportunity to go and visit some of the projects that we're working on in Cambodia there um, because before it's just a lot of discussion and pictures and videos that you get sent. And uh, I remember going to Cambodia and I was getting my shots for the for the trip and uh, I went to the pharmacist and I said, anything that sounds bad, just give me a shot for that. So they were giving me everything from, well, one of them I got was Japanese encephalitis. So, so that doesn't sound like something I wanted to get. And when I went there, I was actually very self-focused and very almost fearful of being in another country. I'd never been to um, an uh, Asia or a developing country before, and it was—I uh, remember being in this van with the crew as we're heading out to one of the northern communities or small villages that we're involved with—and thinking a lot about myself and watching out for mosquitoes and things like that. All the things you're normally warned about. And I remember looking through my window and seeing uh, this young boy um, bathing in a little puddle that was extremely dirty. And almost right away, my mind shifted from self-focus to, uh, to the task that we were there to do. And it was kind of in that moment that my, uh, my, my desire to be a part of this organization went from my head to my heart. And that's uh, sometimes a jump that is difficult to make. But i um, glad I'm a part of it and uh, looking forward to working with them in the future.
1: Thanks for sharing that. I watched a little bit of the video on your website. So I appreciate that you shared that. And thanks for being a little bit vulnerable. So welcome again. And, and thank you, Ben. Hey, finally, joining, finally, joining us from right here in Calgary, we have Gina Rotstein. Gina is the principal at Karma and Sense. Carmen Sense works with family foundations, family enterprises, and small and medium enterprises as they move from traditional philanthropy to Philanthropy 3.0. I can't wait for you to tell us more about Philanthropy 3.0. Like Sherilyn, Gina is not a stranger to our podcast. She last visited us back on Episode 6 in September 2017. So, Gina, welcome back.
4: Thanks, Vince.
1: Gina, we're going to hear a lot more about how you work with families and their philanthropy in just a little bit. But before we do that, and as part of the prep for this, you were telling me that you spent last week embedded with one of your family clients as you helped them with their plans. Why don't you can share a little bit about what that experience was like.
4: Sure. So what's interesting in um, Canada, and I, I would assume the rest of North America, Carmen Sense focuses on Western Canada. So um, all of our clients and cases come from this neck of the world. Um But what I'm noticing is that we're now having four or five generations at the family wealth table, and this family was no exception. Um, Their family foundation was established uh, a year ago, and it was actually, Sherilyn, you might be interested in this one, because it was established in a donor-advised fund, Um, and they had set up some governance structure, even though the donor-advised fund has the operating governance. Um, But as part of this, it was started by the second generation, and it was the second generation that has been encouraging the first and third generations to get more involved. Um, And so this was a trip down to Mexico with all three generations to get a sense of what was motivating the G2 to do the work that they're doing and also to set some uh, impact Measurements and some giving parameters so that the other two generations could be more engaged in the process.
1: Pretty, pretty intense.
4: Yeah, it was a it was a week of exploration and personal, to, personal vulnerability. And um, what what was especially nice is that the all the generations were seeing each other in, in a different perspective. So, normally they would see each other either in the business system or um, as within the family. And this was, they were taken out of their comfort zone in a couple cases. They were thrown into a, a new country with a different language and different food. And uh, they had chosen Mexico because they spend part of their year down there. Um, so, getting them out of the North American enclave and into the Mexican community, was um, part of of this journey for them. So you had asked about what philanthropy 3.0 is. Philanthropy 3.0 is really about looking at giving, not just from writing a check or making traditional donations, but really understanding the system and the ripple effects that your social capital has
2: within the system.
1: Got it. Thanks for that, Gina, and um, uh, I'm sure we'll hear more about Philanthropy 3.0 as we go forward. Okay, let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this, our 34th podcast. Today's topic, all in the family, the state of family giving as the next generation takes the torch. I've been wanting to do a podcast on this topic for a long time. Family giving plays an important role in philanthropy. Arguably, almost every act of philanthropy involves a gift from someone or a group of someone who make up a family. Most of us who work as fundraisers work on the, the receiving end of philanthropy. A small number, but growing, of fundraising and financial professionals also work on the giving end. These folks work with philanthropic individuals and families to advise and counsel them on how best to bring their philanthropy to life and to get their philanthropy working in the areas that are important to them. The huge intergenerational transfer of wealth that the nonprofit is all sector is always talking about, that wealth chance transfer, Before it's given to charity, it's first going to be given to the next generation of family leaders to steward their family's philanthropic intent. And family dynamics are no different whether you have money to give away or you don't. Uh, Working in these dynamics while helping the family achieve its philanthropic goals is exciting and, and, and challenging. Today, we have three amazing professionals, all of whom work and specialize in this exciting and challenging area. To kick it off, I want to start with you, Sherilyn. What are you seeing as the big trends issues, challenges, or opportunities in family philanthropy in in 2019 and beyond?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's an incredibly exciting time. Um, You know, if you think about uh, families, they are very important drivers for philanthropy. Uh, In Canada, uh, family enterprise alone accounts for about 60% of our GDP, um, we don't have data on, uh, family philanthropy, uh, specifically. It would be very hard to, to parse that out, but, um, you know, there's, families are certainly, uh, very big economic engines, um, which, uh, in, in turn, uh, help to support philanthropy. Um, and I think this look at, at families, I mean, it, you know, in terms of, uh, of a trend or an evolution, um you know the the banks the insur- the uh investment firms um uh, the the topic of, of families and family enterprise is very very much on the radar uh companies are looking to develop their capacity uh to to deal with families uh, there's talk about you know working with the whole client meaning your client is not just the person who who comes into your office but they're part of a larger ecosystem and i think uh, as that relates to to fundraising, I think there are a lot of implications there for how uh, how fundraisers and charities view uh, donors and, and understanding that that very often they're part of part of that larger system. I'm also very I'm very optimistic uh, about the the next the next generations. I think uh, next gen itself is kind of a a funny phrase because it can mean different things in, in different uh, contexts. Um, but, uh, I, my experience with, uh, multi-generational families is that there's, uh, a, a real, uh, enthusiasm, uh, for doing well, uh, with, uh, with what they have access to and, and, what they've created, uh, and, and a deep sense of responsibility, uh, for how they direct, uh, those assets and, and, that capital. So, uh, the fact that, um, family philanthropy is on, is on the, the radar, um not just in philanthropic circles, but uh, even beyond that, uh, I think is a, is an exciting indicator uh and that the next generation is uh looking to be so eager uh to really make a make a difference in many levels um of society. So
1: well that's a great uh opener. I'm gonna open it up for, for Gina or for Ben to share with us um or to, to, to tag into what you've just talked about. Um do either of you want to to to, to add to what Cherylyn's talked about?
4: Sure, Don't I'll, be shy. I'll
1: add up. <laughs> Go ahead, Gina. Um
4: so a few things that we've learned over the last little while, we've um we were commissioned to look at the transition space of private family foundations and specifically family foundations that um are more than what, more than two generations old. So they're t- going from second generation to third generation, and um, there's approximately 5,500 private family foundations in Canada in total. Um, so it's not a huge market, uh, but of that 5,500, 700 of them are going from second to third or third to fourth generation. So there is now a history of what. That transition space looks like, um, and now that there, the, now there's this kind of shared memory within the family about what that experience, whether it was good or bad, uh, is like. And so it would, for from the fundraisers' perspective, understanding um, what the family dynamic and family history was at, from the previous transition to the current management team. Uh, is critical, because if it was a positive experience, then it's it's easier to engage than if that transition or that family memory was a negative experience. Um, And I think from a wealth management perspective, we're seeing more of the third to fourth generation family members who were disconnected uh, in the previous transition, opting to transfer those funds under trust management by a third party. So whether it's a a private uh, trust company or uh, a law firm. Um, so there, there's a hands-off approach for families where there was this negative experience, which means that fundraising or soliciting is a little bit harder for those for those uh, foundations.
1: So one of the negative experiences is is it being a disconnected experience, and as a result of that, the next generation is choosing to do things differently. Is that what I'm hearing?
4: So they're choosing one of two things. They're either opting out altogether and they're basically instructing or being told that if they don't want to participate, they can hire uh, an external firm. So they're opting out or they are um, choosing to get more engaged by revamping the mandate of the foundation. Um the problem with that is it creates alienation. Sometimes it can create alienation within the family. So, for example, we're working with one family where the founding generation made their money in the energy sector and uh, the third generation is coming to the table now and they're like, well, we don't, we don't like where our money was made and mm-hmm. we're not comfortable with the, the history of our family." And what does that look like when you're trying to tell your family foundation story, which is a reflection of your grandparents or great-grandparents' legacy? Um, Right. And so, yeah, so it's not just about the philanthropy. It's about the whole system of the family and what that and what legacy really means, Um, because it's not just a charitable legacy.
2: It's everything about that family. Mm hmm.
1: Right. So true. And right.
2: it's also extending into uh, how assets are managed, right? Uh, on the investment side, um, I think that's where next gens are also using their voice. Really? Absolutely. I impact would, investing uh, I
4: would,
2: is... Go ahead, Ben. Oh,
4: sorry, Ben. No, sorry, Ben.
2: Well, I was just going to
3: second that motion. I mean, this is, we're involved in a lot of family transfers as far as share ownership goes for family companies. And there is, unlike any time in history, um, more money being transferred from one generation to the next now than ever, and that will continue to grow over the next 10 years. And just like any parent, they want their kids to be passionate about the same things that they're passionate about, and oftentimes that's not the case. Even in family business, you have somebody who started a business that was, that was their passion and they want to pass that to their children but their children are seeing it not as a passionate pursuit but as, a, as an investment or just an economic driver of some sort and that same kind of growth uh, engagement is not, is not there and it's the same with, uh, with charitable giving. You see that, that heartbeat for one thing and, that, and what's difficult to transition from one generation to the next is that is that heartbeater passion because a lot of that is birthed out of experiences that those that those the kids of the of the first generation owners they have not experienced the same things potentially uh coming back to that i guess philanthropy uh 3.0 that gina was talking about as well
1: so th- th- i i hear that as a, as as an issue in the marketplace um what what do you as advisors as philanthropic advisors and as wealth advisors what do you do in that situation how can you help them facilitate um an outcome that everybody's happy with
2: One of the things that um uh that has been front and center in my work and it really came out uh in my research also um was looking at a dual mis- a dual mission uh, for, for giving for the family. And so the first part of a dual mission is uh, probably what most of us are familiar with. So that could be specific objectives or interest areas or, you know, areas where uh, they may want to have some impact. Um, and that can be very focused and articulated, or it could be quite broad and discretionary. Uh, the second element uh, of, of mission is about the family, uh, what do we as a family want the giving experience to be like? What do we want it to do for us? How are we going to show up? Uh, and when you combine those two elements of of mission, uh, it, it can actually be a very transformational experience uh, for for the family. And uh, you know some some families are are able to do that kind of work uh, more uh, more robustly from the start. Uh, Other families need a a bit more uh, support. Um, uh, Social capital research in in families, uh, certainly drawn from the the family business literature, is that the more practice families have in talking, collaborating, being successful together, uh, the more likely... Uh, they're going to have even greater success next time. Uh, but those two elements of, of, you know, what what can this make possible in the broader community, but also what can it make possible for us as a family, uh, I, I think is a very useful lens for for families to to look through um, as as they think about how we're going to to give together. Uh, and then secondly, I would say, um, and and this comes up with families also. Um, there are different approaches for giving, right? And we hear a lot about um, you know families coming together uh, and having to agree, gaining gaining consensus that we all have to agree on this particular number of grants. Um, that's only one approach, right? Um, it, one of the families uh, that I've worked with uh, in their family, they all they all have discretionary funds. Um, but how they anchor it together is at their meetings, each person brings forward uh, the, the grant that they want to give, and they give the rationale and why it's important for them and what, what values it associates with and, you know, the, what they hope for those investments. Uh, and it's a learning process. They're not judging or, um, you know, there's no collective decision, you know, and voting and so forth um it it's they prioritize the the sense of family cohesion and sharing and learning about each other and understanding you know what what John's passions are and what uh, how Amanda feels about particular issues. and so they've really used philanthropy as a very powerful uh, way to strengthen the family. So I think those two things um, give give some insight into the complexity uh, of of family philanthropy. Uh, but that there there are multiple ways uh, in which to to do it and engage in it.
1: Wow! So I'm digesting that. While I'm digesting that, Gina or Ben, do you want to weigh in with um, how would you address this uh, these challenges or issues with some of your clients?
3: Well, so, uh, I think with oh, sorry. No, go go ahead, ahead, Ben. I was uh, going to say the. You know, when, it talk, when we talk about transitioning family businesses from one generation to the next, there's there's this sense of ownership that has to be, well, actually the title of this podcast is Passing the Torch. And just like when you're in a relay race and you pass the baton from one runner to the next, the runner that's passing that baton does have to let it go. And that's that's a big piece of it. Um, when transitioning any family business or trying to decide who's going to come along with you in your journey of giving. And, you know, it's really encouraging people to say, well, let's not get lost on any particular project, but what's the overarching um, goal that we're trying to create? So, you know, in one case, um, maybe the first generation really liked to support, uh, let's say, a certain orphanage in. Um, in one country, uh, but maybe the overarching goal is helping children. Um, And maybe the second generation doesn't want to support that specific orphanage for various different reasons, but maybe helping children would be a greater kind of thought process. So it's engaging in conversation around topics like that and then helping the first generation maybe broaden their scope about things that they have thought uh, a little bit pigeonholed on in the past potentially.
1: Mhm. It sounds a little bit like Sherilyn's talk about mission broadening, so that's supporting that idea. That's awesome, Gina.
4: So we also have the same kind of approach to what um, Ben and Sherilyn have said, in that you know we we help families think through what their their purpose, their philanthropic purpose really is, and um, how do they manage that social capital and what ties into that. And the way that it manifests itself physically is uh, through the creation of a giving portfolio. So when we when we work with families, just like where charities are required to have logic models for their funding requests and articulated theories of change, we do the same thing with family foundations. Um, but the approach that we take isn't uh, isn't like a, a formal logic model with outcomes and outputs. It's about What's inside of your portfolio and how is that portfolio managed? So inside your portfolio might be traditional philanthropy. There might be impact investing, uh, investment funds. Um, there might be some volunteerism or some pro bono work if you've got a family, uh, family enterprise that actually can, can be leveraged in that way. So we really look at it from a what are all the assets that you're bringing to the table And then how do you combine those assets into a portfolio that will move the dial on whatever the issue is that you as a family have identified? This way, if you have an individual who is passionate in one specific area, you can still tie it into the overarching family's theory of change. Um, And so it's really about layering how and what and when capital and the types of capital is used and then deployed
1: Hmm. so i um i i i'm hearing some some definite crossovers here around the fact that some some tools and mechanisms and conversations about um maybe taking the mission and fitting it into a larger uh context for folks i was also so interested and i think it was so obvious when you said sherilyn about um how important it is that the families uh, also explore what's it doing for the family, what is their giving experience. Um, I think as a fundraiser, I forget that a lot of the times. And I think about more about the, their external presence, which is their sort of mission. And I don't think mm-hmm. a lot about what they're you know, trying to achieve as a family. Because I know we have the same problem in volunteering. You know, uh, we always think, oh, it's self wrong, But actually, volunteers to evolve for a whole host of reasons. Some of them are quite selfish, in other words, for themselves. Uh, they need to 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 enjoy that experience. They need to get something from it. They need networks, and so this family idea is really an interesting one. I don't know if we want to unpack that a little more, or if we want to talk about some of the other uh, challenges, opportunities, and issues in in family philanthropy. And want to help direct us.
2: Um, you know, as you were talking uh, about your your perspective as a as a fundraiser, one of the big aha moment aha aha moment, but um something that really struck me uh as i was doing my study uh and i hear it from my from my clients uh is just how important the role is uh of charities and and fundraisers are often the ones that are bridging this gap uh but you know in my study the the participants uh reflected very much on uh their relationship with the charities uh, and how, how the charities were really their, their portal uh, into a world that, that, you know, they didn't necessarily understand or experience firsthand. And, um, you know, one of the people in my study said uh, I learned, I knew way more, I learned way more about what was happening in the community uh, through my, through my uh, philanthropic and volunteer work than I ever did uh, as a business person. Um, and the person who said that uh ha, you know quite a quite an impressive uh, uh business career, a uh, very large company, national. Um and so so for for me I was like, wow, I, I don't know that I had that uh insight back when I was a fundraiser working for a charity, uh just how critical uh charities role, the, the data that they have about what's happening in the community, uh their insights on on the drivers of those issues. Um, the solutions, what's possible, what can we do, how can we help, um, you know, philanthropists need that information and data. It's not that they don't have ideas on their own, um, but that, that partnership is, uh, is just very incredible. And, and when it comes to next gen uh, participation, um, you know, certainly here in Toronto, I suspect it may be true across the country. There are some great examples of of organizations, charities who are uh, crafting uh, initiatives and programs uh, that engage that next generation and that really bring them inside so that they can uh, they can see what happens, they they are learning uh, and as a result, become more savvy and informed uh, philanthropists. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, and I think uh for those on the on the charity side uh to really take heart uh that you know what they put forward is actually of great meaning and, and very useful uh for for philanthropic families.
1: Thanks for that affirmation. I think we needed to hear that. I'm also made doing the shift every time you say the word next gen, um I'm I'm thinking, okay, we're not talking about millennials. We're talking about G two or G three, like Gina had said earlier. I love that so just saying that for our listening audience that's what we're talking about um anyone else want to uh,
2: to, go ahead sorry sorry to jump in again i but i think that's a good point so uh next gen can mean different things in different contexts right if you're um next gen in one family could be young children uh where parents are are concerned about instilling basic values of kindness uh empathy generosity Uh, Next gens can also be young adults, right, where, you know, concerns about them launching into the world, partnering, uh, the responsibilities of adulthood and wealth uh, are top of mind. And I've also worked with families where the next gens were in their 50s and 60s. And, you know, the conversations were about uh, succession, legacy, family cohesion, uh, and so forth. Um, so next-gen, in some, in some ways, kind of depends where you're standing, who's asking, right? Um, but again, that speaks to the, the complexity uh, mm-hmm. of, uh, of families and, and making sure that we're asking the right questions.
1: I have a little story about a failure. It wasn't a big failure. It was easy to fix. But um, uh, a, a family in Calgary had made a very significant gift to an educational institution and on the eve of the announcement of that, so the next day it was going to be, uh, you know, in, 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 in the media, um, they had this cold shiver run through themselves uh, because they realized they hadn't talked to their kids about it, who mm-hmm. were going to go to school and, and, and have this thing uh, where they didn't really think about their parents in that way. Um, uh, show up, so, so so they had to put a pause and sort of sort that out uh, and and do a few other things. But it was one of those cold mm-hmm. realizations that maybe we should have had a conversation with the next gen about that. So I thought mm-hmm. that was interesting. Um, so mm-hmm. Gina, uh, Ben, uh, you know, you feel free to surface topics or ideas as we go through this uh, or tag into what we're talking about. Um, maybe uh, Ben, I know that. Um, uh you work on the on the wealth advising side. Uh not that that Sherilyn and Gina don't, but that they, they they're the, I, I suggest there's a bit of a nuance there. Do you want to share with us some of the trends that are there for families um on the financial services side?
3: Um sure. Uh you know, again, it's that it's a big transfer of wealth that's happening right now, and a lot of our work is done in concert with Um, groups like Gina's at Karma and Sense who do a lot of the planning for families and then we kind of come in with what would be like nuts and bolts of actual uh, financial products and solutions. Um, But what we're seeing in a lot of families, again, is that transition of heart. Like, will that next gen want to carry on the philanthropic endeavors of their parents? And and what will that mean? Because as you make those transfers of wealth, from one generation to the next, you sometimes have charities that are wondering if that next gen is going to continue giving to them, and sometimes those uh those families can be very big givers, and that next gen is going to have to make their own decisions about what to do with that money and Money is emotional, so in our work, there's a lot of um, a lot of training and discussion that goes into. Uh, how to steward money well, how to manage money well. And I'm not sure if it was Dina or Sherilyn that commented on on the basically using trusts now and maybe a third or fourth gen using trusts to start managing their money instead. Um, and that we're starting to see a lot of as well because they're being raised in an environment of wealth, which obviously for um, a lot of Canadians is not the reality um, but when you're raised in an environment of wealth, the education around it becomes a lot of how do we steward this properly, and so it's helping families through those discussions.
1: Thanks for that, Ben. Gina,
4: did you want yeah, to weigh I, in I, with
1: some? Go ahead.
4: I I really appreciated um, the comments that have come from both Ben and Sherilyn. Um, so the Sherilyn had mentioned about how the role of charities and how important they are in creating uh, learning opportunities for the family. And more often than not, the family foundation is the training ground for the next generation to take leadership roles within the family business. And so it's where the the rising generation is learning how to read financial statements. It's where they're learning their leadership skills, um, their public speaking and presentation style Um, their critical analysis and business analysis skills, all of that is happening at the family foundation table. And um, those spots at the table are not just given. Uh, There are a number of families that actually require earned roles at that table. And one of the ways that they're starting to earn the roles is by creating junior councils so that Mm -hmm. the kids that are in the, usually they're, around 10 years old and up, but they're the, the child generation so that the kids are not um, surprised when all of a sudden there's a major gift made at their school because they've been part of the process through a junior council experience. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so that's one piece, and I think that it's really important, especially for major gift solicitors or major gift fundraisers, to understand that just because you're going to the Family Foundation for the grant doesn't mean that who's actually deciding on your organization. It could very well be transitioned down to a younger group uh that has been tasked with exploring that area of their foundation's funding um and then the other thing that I really appreciated what Ben was saying was around um, the 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 approach or the stewardship of wealth and so what we're seeing more and TD private giving foundation is the one that has released their second uh, study on this is the regendering of wealth and specifically how many women are taking over um, family, not just overall family wealth, but family businesses. Uh, And it's estimated that I believe by 2050, 70% of family wealth is going to be managed by women. And, the way that women approach financial management is very different from men. Um, mm-hmm. Women look at their wealth from a family perspective, not from an individual perspective, even if they're the ones that created the wealth to begin with. And so stewardship has a very different meaning for women than it does for men. And in large part, that means that the sales cycle for charities is going to be three times as long that it would be if there was if they were soliciting uh, a man and it's not because women are slow to make decisions. It's because women are relationship driven. They are looking at it from the family perspective, not from their own personal perspective. They're really looking at how does this engage and empower others to come to the table? Are there opportunities for collaboration? Um, And, and what are the opportunities also to learn? And so, as we see this regendering of wealth, in addition to the wealth transition, we're going to see different ways of stewarding this money. And uh, I think that that's what well, we're already seeing. It. It's sh- shifting the way that money is flowing from private family foundations and donor-advised funds into the charitable sector.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you brought that Um up I, I I haven't heard that term explicitly but it's a brilliant term the regendering of wealth you know um, as a fundraiser we've watched I've watched these trends uh, emerging for a long time and, um, and and so I'll make myself a little uh, vulnerable a little old school and I always thought that um that women controlled a lot of wealth even if it wasn't from the front lines but what I I think I'm hearing you saying is that um they're actually moving to the front lines and not just controlling, but managing it.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, would,
1: would that be fair? I don't want to you know, misconstrue. I'm happy to be corrected, but that you know, whenever I heard about that, um, uh, these these trends in in uh, women in philanthropy, I I, de- I didn't disagree with them, but I always kind of felt like you know, <clears throat> uh, how how many how many of these quote unquote men who were leading um, the face of philanthropy um, actually made the decisions without. Their partner involved if they if they were you know a man and woman partner so I was always curious about that.
4: So uh, Cheryl, I was just going to say so the TD, TD Bank is the the one that did the most comprehensive research on this mm-hmm. and what yeah. they were saying um, was that even in heterosexual relationships where the man was the face of the of the funding uh, the women were the heart. And right. um because men have shorter lifespans than women, that now women are stepping in. Um right. and we also now see the first generation of women who've self created wealth. So they're the entrepreneurs, they're the ones that mm-hmm. had um that had C suite jobs, and so you there's a, a new generation simply because of time that has allowed for women to become this face. So even though they were always part of the conversation, uh, now they're actually coming into the forefront or into the spotlight. Right.
1: So the the, the message out to our listeners is uh, is your sales cycle is going to be longer, and uh, but the relationships might be deeper.
4: Absolutely, mm-hmm. without question.
1: Awesome. I um. I, I, I'm writing down some. I, I did like what Ben said when he said money is emotional. I totally agree. And then this regendering of wealth. We may have to retitle this this session. Um, we've got a couple minutes before I'm going to draw a bow around uh, this and, and give you each a platform. Before we get there, though, is there something that any of you wanted to bring to the table today that you hope that we had talked about that we didn't? I know this topic is huge and we can't go everywhere, but for today's session, is there something you wanted to add to the mix? Anyone?
3: Well I guess just to carry on that thought that Gina was making, um, when it comes to the role of of transferring of wealth, and again money is emotional, and I really like those comments because when it comes to uh, women sitting in those meetings, they are relational masters. And really the transfer of wealth is all about relationship management. Um, It's about tax uh, planning um, asset allocation, but the biggest thing at the back end is relationship management. How is this family going to stick together? What's the relationship like with the philanthropic organizations that they're involved in? What's the relationship like between those philanthropic organizations and those they're trying to help? Um, it's all relational and a lot of times that's overlooked. So I, I love those comments.
1: Great. Sherilyn?
2: Uh, I think the the thing that is uh, quite evident from this conversation today is just how complex families are, um, <laughs> and even even the definition of what is a family, um, it, you know, that's changing and it looks it looks different. And you know, in in some families, that informs uh, very much about you know how how they do their philanthropy, who can participate. Um, you know, there's a, a foundation that I'm aware of. That participation in the foundation is only if you're in the bloodline of of blood of the family, and if you think about, uh, you know, how families come together today, they come together in many different ways, and um, and so I think some of uh, some of the conversation is, uh, you know, how how are we defining family, uh, recognizing uh, that 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 definition can be complex uh but also you know you have blended families you have multiple branches of families and um, so it's not it's not just the traditional uh mom dad and a couple of kids and you know add a uh, add a sizable amount of money uh to the conversation and you can see why issues around um, you know family governance um, uh, decision making social capital around the family table become so critical uh so that they can be successful uh, in, in all aspects of their life, including their philanthropy.
1: Thank you, Sherilyn. Sherilyn, I was curious when I was listening to Gina talk about how, uh, family foundations are a great training ground and you did, your research was, was, I, I, I feel like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I, your research was focused on those families who weren't necessarily in a family foundation environment. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and so, how how are they getting like wh- where are they getting their training? Uh, how how do their government well, structures support training?
2: Yeah, they function in a very similar way. Um, so oh, they do. You know, oh, okay. They have they m- may have a, a meeting. It may be quarterly. It may be annually. Uh, there there's delegation of tasks. There's roles and responsibilities. Uh, uh, in some cases, there was a rotating chair system um both of the families that uh in my study uh, used donor advised funds so there was a there was a financial reporting piece uh there was an accountability piece that really came out in my research uh account individual accountability what you know how am i uh, showing up in this process uh accountability to each other as a family and accountability to the larger community um one family in my study um who i just adored Uh, the parents really were so intentional in how they structured uh, the family's approach to giving because they wanted it to be um, instructional uh, and part of, to assist the moral development of their kids. And they engaged their kids right from when they were adolescents. Um, And, you know, today their kids are in their twenties and they're grounded and they're savvy philanthropists and they're generous and they're, um, and and you know the parents really attribute to how they structured uh the philanthropy of, of the family uh to support those those things they the kids had to uh they had to participate they had to do research they had to um, meet with organizations they had to volunteer they had to do presentations as as Gina referenced the the public speaking they had to craft a uh a presentation to share with their with their family uh, they had to report back on the gift uh, that they had made the previous year. Um, so families very intuitively uh, uh, are, are able to, to craft their giving in a way um, that, uh, that can be that training ground um, for, you know, one of the uh, fathers in my study uh, said it's, it, it's not just about um, uh, uh, philanthropy, uh, it's become about accountability to life. And I think that that is such a uh, a wonderful reflection on how they were able to craft their philanthropy and practice their philanthropy in a way uh, that um, allowed their kids to learn such such valuable lessons uh, on their own terms, uh, and now they're doing it. Now they're, you know, the, the parents' objectives uh, have been fulfilled in many ways.
1: <laughs> well, that's a great note. To close off this podcast, uh, I mean, I th- that idea that that family legacy is about more than money. It's about more than philanthropy. It's also about the process. It's about the, the personal accountability uh, and all those learnings. That's fantastic. So this has been a fantastic conversation. I've learned a ton. Um, maybe you guys haven't learned much because you all knew it all, but I learned a ton, and I know our listening audience will as well. Um, so I can't wait for us to do maybe a series of these. Thank you. You've been great guests and Gina, Sherilyn. I can't wait to have each of you back on our podcast. But before you go, I want each of you to tell us a little bit more about um, where people can reach you or what you're working on, Um, maybe some resources. Um, uh, Our our listening audience uh, typically is made up of folks who are working in the nonprofit sector, but I think that we may be able to promote this to folks who may actually have um, a desire to learn more about family philanthropy or maybe a family that needs some um, counsel and help. So uh, think about those in terms of resources. So Gina, anything you want our listening audience to know or what you're working on or a pet peeve or a big project?
4: <laughs> Thanks so much, Vince, for this opportunity. It's, it's great to reconnect with Sherilyn and hear Ben's voice uh, online again. Um, so Karma and Sense, we focus mostly in Western Canada. We are completely agnostic in that we don't work with charities So we only work with families and individuals who want to generate impact with uh, their social capital. And so um, that's our focus. And the approach that we take is by designing social impact labs. So uh, helping these individuals identify complex problems that they want to tackle and then uh, creating the space that allows them to experiment and design solutions that fit both the family's objectives, but also the grantees or recipient partners. Um, And as for resources, on our website, there's a section called Insights, and we post case studies there. We post um, some of the tools that we've created for families. And I think for the charities that are listening, uh, it might be helpful for them just to see some of the things that the types of conversations that we have with clients and how they get to where they get to uh, the case studies might be of, of help there. So it's karmaandsense.com.
1: and I will put that in the show notes, but I'm glad you put it out there for the folks who maybe put eye drops in their eyes and can't see their screens. Um, Uh (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Charlotte, (laughs) I had to say that. Uh, Ben, we'll, we'll turn it over to you. Um, uh, what do you want our listening audience to hear? You can tell us a little bit about your amazing company and what you're uh, sort of working on as we get into the Christmas season, the holiday season.
3: Um, for sure. Um, you can, I guess, check more of uh, more of our company out at www.daboski.com, D-E-B-O-S-K-I. And we do financial strategies for business owners and professionals. In the philanthropic space, we work alongside... Groups like Gina and Karma and Sense and just putting together, I guess, financial product strategies to go along with the planning that they're doing um, and creating uh, funds that you might be able to give from for an infinite period of time. And so check us out at TheBossGee.com.
1: Thanks Ben. I when I went to your website, I was thrilled to see um I mean you're you're in the wealth advising wealth management uh business uh but uh, a third of your you know sort of uh directionality on your website had the word philanthropy in it. There was three big boxes and one of them had philanthropy. I really loved that. So, thanks for for being part of our our podcast today. Um nice to Sherilyn, you uh you you opened us up and you get to close us out. Uh what do you want our listening audience to remember?
2: Yeah. Well, um, so Watermark Philanthropic Council. Uh, I help those who give give well, and um, and it's been a, a wonderful journey for me, uh, having started my career as a fundraiser and uh, and now to be uh, on this side of the table and uh, just how how wonderful it is to have such meaningful conversations um, with uh, with people who are generous and and want to make the world better. Um The uh, summary of my of my research, my doctoral research, uh, is on my website, so I invite people to check that out at watermarkpc.com uh, It's a, a two-page summary, which my goodness, it, it's hard to distill 200 pages down to two, but I did my best <laughs> and happy to share that um, uh, for for others who may be interested um I think the last thing I, I uh, started a, a new uh, research uh, study on high net worth philanthropy in the in the Caribbean, um, and for many who know me know that uh, I do work with clients uh, in the Caribbean uh, as well as uh, Toronto uh, where I I live. Um, but uh, there's a lot of generosity that happens uh, in the Caribbean region, both by uh, indigenous uh, families and, and entrepreneurs and so forth, uh, but also people, um, non, non-nationals who live in the region. They may be from uh, the U.S., from Canada or the U.K., uh, but uh, so you have some very distinct philanthropic footprints, uh, and I'm, which I've been very curious about uh, for a number of years and uh, thrilled to be able to Um, be starting that study and hope to uh, be sharing it by the end of next year.
1: Thanks, Sherilyn. I think to to go and get your doctorate, you have to be insatiably curious, and I know you are. So thank you with that. I'm going to steal a line that you gave to close us out. I feel like this whole podcast for me has been a conversation with meaningful people who are generous, and that's you folks. So thank you for that. Um, With that, our gift of another brain trust philanthropy, powered by betrayal, has been committed.
0: Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next month for our second episode of 2020 when we will be visiting with Suzanne Duncan from the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, and Susan Story, a partner with KCI philanthropy. Our topic is one that is close to my heart: philanthropic naming and sponsorship naming rights. Until then, we look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Braintrust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.